Welcome to Cross Communities Podcast. We're glad you're here to listen today. We hope that today's message will strengthen your faith and help you to love God and people more. Well, if you have your Bibles, however you get your Bibles, go ahead and grab those. You know we're in Apocalypse, right? Revelation. Revelation. And we're going to get there. But before we even read our passage, before I even announce it today, I want to make a little bit of a pastoral confession, okay? And some of that confession is right here on the desk. I know some of you see all these books and you're like, oh my goodness, are we going to be here till dinner? Uh, Because I got something in the oven right now. Uh, no, um, my confession to you today is that I'm really not that smart. <laughs> that, uh, that when I get up to preach, there is a lot of reading that goes into that. And I wanted you to just get an example of that. I'm not going to go through all these things, but I want you to see some of these things. Here is, here's a, a Hebrew Bible and a Greek Bible. I try my best to do a translation of whatever passage that we're going through so that I understand the words, the grammar, the text that's going on. Um, then uh, there's, there's a book on here when it comes to Revelation, what we're talking about today. This is my Kindle. There are many, but this represents a library, as for many of you it does. Uh, one book by Scott Daniels in particular has been so helpful for me. Uh, he's a Nazarene pastor out in uh, Nampa, Idaho. Phenomenal book. Um, Several, uh, several commentaries. And commentaries are, are just books that scholars have written. They go through verse by verse a certain book and, and they break it down and they read and they help you. This one, I, I, I would recommend this series to any layperson. It's just called, um, whatever the book is. So in this one, Revelation for Everyone by N.T. Wright. Starts out with a little kind of uh, illustration and then just kind of takes you through the passage. You can do that for any of the New Testament. There is a series for the Old Testament written by one of my professors from Fuller, John Golden Gay. Um, great stuff. Um, this book I have found so helpful. These two books when it comes to this series and anything we do in Revelation. Uh, Reverse Thunder by Eugene Peterson. Uh, phenomenal, phenomenal book. Uh, just really helps you understand. But this one, I cannot reckon, recommend this book enough by Michael Gorman called Reading Re- Revelation Responsibly. Reading Revelation Responsibly. And the subtitle is Uncivil Worship and Witness Following the Lamb into the New Creation. Phenomenal, readable book. You should check that out. But I also think it's important to, to look at history. What have Christians in the past said about whatever passage that we're looking at. I, I look at devotional books. This is another good one by N.T. Wright, Surprised by Hope. And uh, and here's another one uh, by our, our, our Nazarene denomination, The Second Coming, a Wesleyan approach to the doctrine of last things. So all of this, why am I telling you all of this? Not Not just so you can look at me and say, oh, well, he's a great researcher or those kinds of things. What I want you to hear right at the beginning before we read the passage today is that we always need to read the Bible in community. And here represents the community. I mean, this is even Pastor Ken. When I told him I was doing a series in Revelation, he's preached on it a few times. And so he gave me notes and he gave me... uh, 
cassette tapes. I had to hunt down a cassette recorder to, to listen to some things. But I don't just stand up here and spout off things to you. That I always read the Bible in community. And it is the best way, and I would say the only way we should read the Bible. If we're going to accurately fall in line with where Jesus has led the church and Christians through the millennia. And so this is important. I want us to see this. And there's a little bit of teaching I want us to do even before we read our passage because it's going to inform our passage. And so your first Greek word for the day is eudios. Would you like to say that with me? Ready? One, two, three. Eudios. Uh, this is not the Greek letter. This is phonetic. I'm just wanting everybody to say it right. All right, ready? Let's say it again together. One, two, three. Eudios. Now, in your scriptures, it's going to be translated Jew. And that's fine. But what does the word Jew mean? And so I went back into my research, and, and what Jew means is one who submits to God. That's what it means to be a Jew. And that's why Paul, in his letters, would say that the one who follows Jesus, the one who trusts in Jesus, is a Jew, is one who has submitted to God. And that word is eudios. Next, I want you to see this Greek word. It is the word synagogue. What does that sound like in English? Synagogue. Yes, exactly. And that's how it will be translated in your Bible. Synagogue. Let's say it together just for fun. One, two, three. Synagogue. Now, synagogue doesn't mean like a house of worship. Synagogue literally means congregation. Just like we, do, we say church isn't the building, church is the people. They would, we didn't just come up with that on our own. We came out of Jewish tradition as Christians, as Jesus, as the Jewish Messiah. And so we took that and we are the called out ones, ecclesia. But synagogue simply means, let's say it together, congregation. So we have eudios, one who submits to God. Synagogue, congregation. Now I want you to see this one. Two satana. Let's say that together. Ready? One, two, three. Two satana. Let's say it one more time. Ready? One, two, three. Two satana. Now, two satana means the accuser or the prosecutor. If you were in a legal setting, there would be someone who was the two satana. They were the prosecutor. They were the one who is accusing whatever's going on. Now, what does satana sound like in English? Satan, of course. And the pinnacle, the culmination of all accusation comes from Satan, right? He is the accuser, the liar. And so, and yet, there's something here also that this is also a title to Satana, the accuser, the prosecutor. One more Greek word and then we'll read, I promise. Alright? And that is the word diabolos. You want to say that with me? Ready? One, two, three. Diabolos. Let's try it one more time. One, two, three. Diabolos. It sounds like what? The word diabolical. Yes. And in your Bible, it's going to be translated as devil. If you are, if you are from, understand Spanish, isn't Diabolos, isn't that, or somewhat, something close to that, isn't that? Diablo, yes, Diablo in Spanish, very similar. But it literally means a false accuser. Diabolos, this is just the Bible dictionary. It says in secular Greek, 
it means backbiter. It's an accuser, a slanderer, literally someone who casts through, in essence, making charges that bring down and destroy. Kind of sounds like the one that Jesus said ultimately is alive to maim and kill and destroy, right? The one that we call the devil. But it is also a false accuser. So to Satanah, I want you to see this, and Diabolos, I want you to understand this very quickly right here at the beginning, is describing the action of the congregation, the synagogue, not the people of the congregation. Let me say that again. To Satanah and Diabolos are describing the action of the congregation, not the people. Of the congregation. Why did I make such a big deal about this? Because when we depersonalize people as demons or devils, it becomes way too easy to resort to all manner of violence against them. When a passage like the one we're about to read is ripped out of context, it becomes a brick that can build a foundation of genocides or holocausts. And so I want to be very, very careful and clear as we look at this passage today. We need to understand that this letter to the church, this word from Jesus to the church that John was called to write down, is describing an internal Jewish conflict. Are you with me? I, I know this, this is going to sound maybe a little, little too intense, a little too heavy. But it's going to make sense as we read. I'm getting a little ahead of myself. So let's turn to Revelation chapter 2. And we're going to read verses 8 through 11. And since these are the words of Jesus to the church, I'm going to invite you to stand and to hear them. Hear the word of the Lord to us today in Revelation chapter 2, beginning at verse 8. And to the angel of the church of Smyrna write. Remember last week we talked about the angel of the church being the ethos or the personality of that congregation. And we furthermore said that Jesus is the one who holds in his right hands the true ethos or personality of the church. We are his body, right? And so this is to the angel of the church of Smyrna. And Jesus is going to call in all of these messages those who are off track to repent and those who are on track to celebrate. Today we have some celebration, even though it's a rough message for us to hear. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of the first and the last who was dead and came to life. I know your affliction and your poverty even though you're rich. I know the slander on the part of those who say that they are Jews submitted to God and are not, but are a synagogue, a congregation of accusers, a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer because the false accuser, the devil, is about to throw some of you into prison so that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have affliction. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. 
Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the church. Whoever conquers will not be harmed by the second death. This is the Word of the Lord to the people of the Lord here and online. And our response is, thanks be to God. You may be seated. This is a picture of Anthony Ray Hinton when he was 29 years old. He lived outside of Birmingham, Alabama, and this is him being arrested at 29. He was accused of a crime. He was accused of murdering two people, attempting to rob a a third person uh, who he shot or or who he was accused of shooting and then uh, was taken into jail. And, uh, And he was put on trial and this trial went and he was accused, even though his own boss stood on the stand and said he was in my locked, closed grocery store cleaning up aisles at the time that the murders took place, even though the gun fired did not match, the ballistics did not match, he was sentenced to death. And he was put into death row, a five by seven foot cell for nearly 30 years. He was angry. I think you'd be angry. If you're interested in hearing more of this story, and we're going to go through some of it, but if you want a a better, longer telling, you can either read his book or you can watch the movie Just Mercy, which is about his attorney, but deals with his case. He was angry. And he found himself uh, just... He said, for the first three years, I decided I'm so angry, I'm just not going to speak to anyone. He sat in his cell. He did what he was asked. He ate when he was supposed to. And he said it was the same thing day after day after day. And he was silent. He would not speak a word. Then one night... While he was in his cell, he came to realize something. And he said, "Waiting around, I realized that waiting around to die is no way to live. But he came up with something. He said, but I have got to find something to live for. I'm in a five by seven cell. It's me, a bed, a toilet, and some bars. I've got to find something to live for. All this waiting around to die is no way to live. I think if you and I were there, we would feel some of those similar things. Maybe we would get to that point where we would say, waiting around to die is no way to live, but I've got to find something worth living for. I think the people of Smyrna, this little church, this little Jewish gathering that was beginning to incorporate outsiders that they called Gentiles around the Jewish Messiah, thinking that this was a a fulfillment of what the Hebrew tradition had called them to. We, We don't realize this because we're so far removed from that time. But initially, Christians were and Jews were together in the congregation. They worshiped together. And it wasn't until later when some Jews began to say that they did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And we don't like that you're bringing in the insiders, even though our own scriptures tell us that all the nations of the world will be blessed through us. 
And they began to push them out. One way that this was happening was in this city of Smyrna. Last week we learned about Ephesus, which was one of the greatest cities of the time. Uh, not too far away, 40 miles as the crow flies, but a lot longer on roads in Turkey or taking the ocean route, was the city of Smyrna. It was a big city, but not as big as Ephesus. And there was a little bit of competition about the city. I also found this interesting in my community reading, that the city had been destroyed by invaders many times and rebuilt. So I thought it was interesting that Jesus uses the metaphor that Smyrnans would understand the one who was dead but now is alive again, because they used to say that about their city. And he's saying, remember, it's not your city, it's me who is dead. And now alive again. But there was things, there were things that were going on in the city. And this city, Smyrna, was one of the first places where people worshipped the emperor and the empire as God and God's kingdom and God's will. And it began to work its way down into the city and into the guilds and into the trade unions and all of those things. In fact, it became so important to worship the emperor and the empire that you were required at least once a year to go and give just a pinch of incense and burn that for the emperor and to say that you were supporting and you were, you were involved. Well, there was a group that had a struggle with that. That was the Jews. Because they're called to worship God and worship God alone. Lucky for them, the Roman Empire, one of its tenets was to allow for religions to worship as they should. And so Jewish people were given an exemption from burning incense. And that included, at the time, those Christians who were worshiping with the Jewish community. They began to do that. But as I've already said, the Jewish community didn't like these non-Jews coming in. And then those non-Jews not offering the incense and borrowing their religious right to not do that. And so they began to push them out and they began to slander the Christians saying, they are not us. They're not a part of us. They should be required to follow the law. They should be the ones that are burning the incense. And now that those Jewish Christians and the Gentiles who were with them were in a predicament because if you didn't support the emperor and the empire you were looked on as atheists and you were looked on as people not to be trusted we're not sure they're with us we should keep them to the margins and when slander continued and continued some within the Jewish community and some on the outside as people began to look at these Christians who were, why are these two groups together? And why are they caring for the poor? And why? And they just began to be persecution. And there began to be trials. And there began to be testing. And there began to be arrests. You see how they might feel a little like Anthony Ray Hinton. Well, how are we to respond? How are they to respond? Uh, you know, to be honest, we are not in a place where we are suffering a lot. Is it okay for me to say that? 
But how are we to respond when suffering comes? How are we to respond when we can't stop the suffering that comes? Maybe it's not religious, economic, political suffering. Maybe it's the suffering of illness. Maybe it's the suffering of family conflict or struggle. But what are we to do when suffering comes and we can't stop it? When people that we trusted, like those Christian Jews and Gentiles, trusted the Jewish community that they worshipped with. They were family for so long. And now they're being pushed out. Now they're being persecuted. How are they to respond? How are we to respond? Jesus' reply is this. Let's look at it. Genu pistu. Genu pistos. Are you ready? And, I, and just, just to be very clear, pistos does not mean very angry. Genu pistos. Are you ready to hear what this means? This is Jesus' response to the congregation. It means to be or to become faithful. Genu is the word be, become faithful. The thing I want you to hear about this is that this is in the imperative mood. I know that just thrills your heart, but the imperative mood is a command. This is not an optional thing. In the midst of suffering, what is the response of the one who follows Jesus? It is Gnu Pistos. It is that we become faithful. And that doesn't just mean that we think about our faith more. And we just say, oh, well, I believe in God the Father, and we quote, quote the creeds, or, or those kinds of things. No, we become active word, faithful. We begin to live and to love like Jesus lived and loved. That's our response to suffering. It's as if Jesus was saying, in essence, you worry about living and loving faithfully and leave the accusers to me to hear you worry about living and loving faithfully and leave the accusers to me because i showed you how to live and to love remember we can trust jesus with the accusers jesus knows what to do with accusers what does he do he dies for them he forgives them as they're crucifying him He calls them. He seeks after them. He goes for them just like He went after you and me and died for us and provided forgiveness and called us into this. Jesus says, you live and love like I lived and love and you worry about, you let me worry about the accusers. Is that hard to hear? Because we like to jump on the bandwagon and we're waiting for the swords to come out and get rid of all them people. But he says, no, you worry about living and loving faithfully. You, Genu Pistos, you become faithful and leave the accusers to me. Anthony Ray Hinton did that. In his cell, as he prayed the words, waiting around to die is no way to live, but i got to find something to live for. In that moment, he heard a grown man from a few cells down, crying. And he said, I was drawn to the bars. And for the first time, I said the first words in in that cell. And I said, hey man, are you okay? Do you need me to call the guard for you? 
And the guy said, no, I'm all right. I just found out that my mom died. And he said, I broke. And I knew. He said, I had something to be thankful for because my mom still drew breath on the outside. I may not be able to see her or touch her, but I know she's alive. He said, I found something worth living for. And he began to do some things within that cell. He began to read. He said, I had found that reading was a great escape, whether it was the Bible or other books I could get. And I began to teach that and tell that to the other inmates so that they could also learn to read and learn to to escape that five by seven cell, to have something to hope for. He said, the state of Alabama had taken my life and taken my liberty, but they could not take my joy. And in teaching them, he built community. Now, I I don't want you to just think this is all roses. Because he talks about how in his nearly 30 years of being there, he saw 54 of his fellow death row inmates walk down the aisle to the electric chair. And he said, and mine was closest. So you could hear. And you could smell. He said, but we determined we would not let anybody walk down that aisle alone. We would do it together all the way. He found some way to live and to love faithfully and let Jesus deal with the accuser. That's a tough story. How do you and I then, how do we suffer faithfully? I believe there are three things that are going to help us if this ever becomes a part of our journey as a, commu- as a community or your journey as an individual, whether you're here or online. How do we suffer faithfully? I think we have to have some understanding that Jesus sees our suffering. Look at verse 9 says, I know your afflictions and your poverty, even though you are rich. I know the slander and the part of those who are saying that they are submitted to God and they are not, but are a congregation of accusers. I want us to remember as we read these words, this is not just a counselor trying to make you feel better in the midst of your suffering. This is not a pastor just trying to give you a rah-rah speech so you can go out. These are the words of Jesus. These are the words of the One who was first and last and everything in between. These are the words of the One whose counsel Countenance is like the sun, whose words out of his mouth are like a two-edged sword. These are the words of the one who walks in and among the lampstand of the church and holds the seven stars in his hands. And these are the words to those who are suffering that I know and I see your suffering. I'm not a God far off. I'm a God right in your midst. And there's something about knowing that someone is with you in your suffering that changes everything. So one, we have to remember, Jesus sees our suffering. Number two, we have to remember that Jesus has suffered. We have to remember that Jesus has suffered Himself. 
I, I think sometimes, I know some of you are like, well, duh. But I think sometimes we forget that Jesus was a man acquainted with sorrows and grief. That He suffered on a cross. And it is He who writes the words, as says, speaks the word to a suffering church and says, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Beware the, the devil, the diabolical one, the the false accuser is about to throw some of you into a prison so that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have affliction. Be faithful until death. Only someone who knows and has experienced suffering can encourage you to not fear suffering. Amen? And the one who speaks these words to the church is not only the one who sees their suffering, but who has experienced suffering. He is the one, don't forget, who says, I am the one who was dead, but is now alive. And when we know someone has gone through, I I can tell you, I can be the best counselor in the world without even trying when someone comes in and I've struggled with what they've struggled with. You just know. You know the right questions to ask. You know just how to be in the room. You you know. And we have a God who knows what we suffer. He sees us and He has experienced that suffering. Lastly, Jesus supplies life even in death. Look at verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Beware the devil is about to throw some of you into prison so that you may be tested. But for 10 days you will have affliction. That that for 10 days, my scholarly reading, my community tells me that what most scholars believe is that the 10 days, they didn't believe in long 30-year prison sentences on death row. 10 days was judge, jury, and execution. And it was done. So he's saying, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. That even if you're walking down death row, you are not alone. There is someone who is there. Stay faithful. Have hope. You never know. The last minute might have something in store for you. And we need to remember That even if we take our last breath here, we believe in the one who was resurrected and gives that life to the one who dies. And he, if we are faithful, will give us the crown of life or life as a victory. That happened for Anthony Ray Hinton on this side of life. Uh, spoilers if you're going to go watch the movie. Because 29 years after, an attorney came and found him. And an attorney went out and hired three professional ballistics experts. And they took it all the way to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court eventually overturned that conviction. And almost 30 years later, Anthony Ray Hinton received life as a crown of victory as he walked out of that prison cell. 
And today he continues to try to inspire people and to make change in the system so that there's not another young man or young woman who is unjustly accused and suffers for 30 years while being innocent. He was interviewed and the interviewer said, you don't seem very bitter. This was his reply. Bitterness kills the soul. I cannot hate because my Bible teaches me not to hate. I've seen hate at its worst. What would it profit me to hate? Can you imagine walking out of a 30-year unjust prison sentence and saying those words? Only Jesus can do something like that. Only one who has seen Him in His suffering. Only one who has understands suffering and, and knows how to inspire. And only the one who can give life as a crown, even in death, can do something like that. Now, I need to pause here for just a second because this is important. Again, if this passage gets ripped out of context, it feels like we're glorifying suffering. Like, okay, just go suffer. That's what Jesus wants. No, 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 do not hear that. You online, do not hear that. We do not glorify in suffering. We can move away from it if possible. And if you are suffering abuse right now at someone else's hands, I want to encourage you, find a way, find a church, make a call to a hotline, call the police, find a place of safety. We're talking about an ancient time where we didn't have roads and and accessible ways of getting out or, or these types of helps in society. We are not glorifying suffering. We're simply saying when suffering happens and it's unavoidable, Jesus calls us to live faithfully. Faithful living, I want you to know, I also want you to know that faithful living and loving still holds people accountable. He said, uh, Mr. Hinton said those beautiful things when he walked out. That's true. He also said that anyone who had part in his unjust suffering will have to answer to God for their part in that. So please don't hear that we don't, oh, well, it's just okay, status quo, nothing needs to change. No, we still believe That living and loving faithful calls people into accountability. And when the system is broken, we speak out. We look for ways of helping those who are suffering. And that's my last important message. Is that we don't ignore suffering. The church of the Nazarene has never ignored suffering. Back before we would even... founded ourselves as a national denomination and all of that, when, when there were young women who had babies and they weren't married, and in that society that was frowned upon, and they were subjected to poverty and to begging, we built orphanages and homes where they could have their babies, raise their babies, and learn that Jesus loved them and their babies. We did that. We still today have Nazarene compassionate ministries so that any time there is a natural disaster in the world, we send Nazarenes to go and help to rebuild, to, to restore hope, to do the small things that are needed. And did you know that we're kind of, we're like just behind the Red Cross in some of this help that we do? That's beautiful. We don't ignore suffering. 
We go with hope. And we don't just go with the hope of a Bible, although we include it. But we go with the hope to build wells, to build schools, to build hospitals. And yes, to build orphanages. Because we don't ignore suffering, even though we are called to endure it faithfully when we cannot move away from it. I don't know, church, when we will face true suffering. But I want you to know that when we do, we will not face it alone. Can you hear that today? I don't know when it will be. But whenever it is, we won't do it alone. We will do it together with Jesus. We'll do it together with Jesus. Don't you think it's so incredible then that the symbol that Jesus gave us to remember that He is with us is to remember His suffering. His faithful suffering in bread and cup. Reminds us of His teaching that Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains a grain of wheat. But when it does, it produces more and more life. Go ahead and grab your communion elements wherever they are. If you're online, grab something there in your home and join us as we remember faithful suffering. The faithful suffering of the One who calls us into faithful suffering. Let's go ahead and do the noisy part here with these little tiny communion cups. If you did not grab this on your way in, that's okay. You can grab one now. Or Chris, would you run? And we want anybody, yeah, you Chris, whoever, this Chris. We've got lots of Chris's. Because we don't want anyone to suffer alone. We're together with Jesus in the call to faithful suffering. And so on the night that he was betrayed, he took these elements. Chris is here with some of those elements. Does anyone need need elements? Here's one over here. Jim, did you need one right there? We want anyone, we're giving our folks online time to find their crackers and juice. Anyone else? We want anyone. You don't have to be a member of the Church of the Nazarene to take communion with us. All you have to do is be hungry for Jesus that we've talked about today. If you're hungry, He wants you at His table. And so we invite you. On the night He began His physical faithful suffering, He took bread and He broke it. He gave it to His disciples and He said, This is My body, broken for you. Take that same night he took the cup and he poured wine into it he said this is my blood shed for you take and drink Lord Jesus what a difficult message to hear and receive both in the fact that we are so blessed right now not to suffer. But so eye-opening to see that when suffering comes in its many forms, 
We are called not to a cold, just be faithful, but to enter in with you and with a community to say you're not alone. Find a way, something to live for. Find a way to live and to love faithfully as I lived and loved. Because I see your suffering. I've experienced that suffering. And I'm going to give you life in the midst of your suffering. Help us to lean into that. Help this message to this church so long ago embed itself in our whole, in our heart and in our psyche, in our whole body. So that we have a new look on life. Oh God, continue to move and shape us. As we see suffering, help us to have a new lens to look and say they shouldn't suffer alone. We go with them. We help them. We call out. We hold accountable. We move because Jesus was moved by suffering. So call us through this passage and through Your Spirit moving in us. For we pray and we ask all of these things in the name of the one who suffered and was raised on our behalf. In the name of Jesus, the one who walks among the lampstands, who holds the seven stars in his hands, whose words pierce like a two-edged sword, whose countenance is like the sun, who was dead and is alive again. It's in his name we pray all these things. And all God's people said, Amen. Would you stand and receive this blessing? James, can we go to that last slide from the sermon? I want you to be sent out with the words of Anthony Ray Hinton. This is something he said when he walked out of prison. Oh, where to go? I want you to know that there is a God. He sits high, but He looks low. He can destroy but yet He will defend. And He defended me. Brothers and sisters, go in that assurance. Go into your week with eyes to see suffering. Go into your week and if suffering visits you, know you are not alone. We walk with you, with Him, into the future, together. And life will be given as victory. I pray and bless you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. One God forever and ever. Amen. Go in peace. Thank you for joining us online. God bless you. Have a great week. We'll see you next week. Thank you for tuning in to Cross Communities Podcast. We hope you will join us next week. We would love to connect with you today for listening to our podcast. Please fill out a connect card on our website at c3nas.net. You can also support the ministries of Cross Community by giving online on our website.